got your Bible with you, uh, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read from verses 1 uh, to 6. Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 1 to 6. Matthew writes, In the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary to see the sepulchre. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake and became as dead men. And the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Every now and then you see something on television or we read something and uh, we end up saying this, only in America. You ever heard yourself saying that? You know, some strange thing is presented and you think, only in America. Only in America would they do such a thing. Only in America would they have such a thing. And I read a story a while back uh, that made me say only in America. It was a story of a funeral parlor in California that brings to the business of death the convenience of the living. What they decided they would do is have a drive-through viewing of the deceased. So you don't actually have to go into the funeral home to see your loved one uh, lying in rest. You simply went past a window, a bulletproof glass window, no less. And I wondered, why is it got to be bulletproof? The man's already dead. Who's going to shoot him? What harm can you do to him? But nevertheless, it's a bulletproof uh, window. If you, you drive past, and here's what the undertaker said. He said, it's a unique feature that sets us aside from other funeral parlors. You can come by after work. You don't need to deal with parking. You can sign the book of condolence outside and the family knows that you paid your respect, respects. It's a convenience thing. You know, I'm not so sure, personally, that the best way of paying your respects from the, for the dead is from the driving seat of your car. It seems to say, well, you know, I'm really going to miss you, but not miss you enough to get out of the car. <laughs> And so, you know, you just wonder where they go. What's the next step in convenience of funerals? Will they just put the body on a trailer and run it past your home and then you can just silence your TV for a few seconds and wave bye-bye to your loved one as they go down the road? Uh, who knows? But uh, you hear a story like that and you say, only in America. Only in America would they have a drive-in, a drive-through viewing of the deceased. Well, in our text this morning... The angel of God invites us to come see the place where the Lord lay. And I'm so glad he didn't say come and see the body where the Lord lies. But he says come and see the place where the Lord lay. You know, I'm glad they didn't have a body to view, aren't you? And uh, this is our resurrection hope uh, this morning and indeed every Sunday morning. We're invited not to see a corpse by this angel, but to see a place. 
to see a burial plot. And this morning I want to take you to that place and we're going to view that burial plot and we're going to consider the message it has to bring us. You see, no tomb, no grave is unique as this one in all the world. Hence the angel says, come see the place where the Lord lay. Now I want to back up a little bit in Matthew's gospel to chapter 27 and I want to read from verse 57 with you if you will just a a few verses because we get some indication of what kind of place this was, what kind of grave it was to which the angel invites us for a viewing. He says in verse 57, when the even was come, that is the evening of the Lord's crucifixion, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. Now, there's a number of things that you can ascertain from those few verses concerning the tomb of Jesus. And each one of those descriptions really tells us something about the importance of this place and the one whose body had lain there. First of all, I want you to notice it was a costly tomb. It was a costly tomb. It belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. And notice verse 57 describes him as a rich man. Well, who was this man, Joseph of Arimathea? Well, we know a little bit about him. We know a little bit about his life. We know a little bit about his character. Matthew tells us that not only was he a rich man, but was Jesus' disciple. And what John adds to that is that he was his disciple secretly for fear of the Jews. Mark tells us he was an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God. In other words, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel that put Jesus to the cross. But Luke tells us that Joseph himself would have no part in that particular decision and that he absented himself from the proceedings and had not consented to the council and deed of them. Luke describes him as a good man and a just man. And Mark presents him as a courageous man who, after the injustice that was inflicted upon Jesus at his death, reported him as going boldly unto Pilate where he craved the body of Jesus. Now, let me tell you something. That took a bit of nerve. I would imagine by the end of the day, Pilate had had it up to here with Jesus. He had spent this whole morning uh, trying to get Jesus released and, uh, and trying to get the Jews to see some sense so as he wouldn't wind up crucifying an innocent man. But in the end, he capitulated to popular opinion. He did give the order to crucify Christ. Even against his own wife's advice, he gave that order. And probably he was thought to himself, I'm happy to be done with this guy. I don't want to hear any more about him. And then this fellow, Joseph of Arimathea, an influential Jew, turns up on his doorstep and craves the body of Jesus. And in doing that, Joseph not only risked the anger of the procurator of Judea, but also of his fellow Jews. Those in the Sanhedrin would not have viewed his appeal for the body of Jesus lightly. But the key thing I want you to get in regard to Joseph and his tomb was this, that he was a rich man. 
and this was a rich man's tomb. You know, 700 years B.C., 700 years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah wrote this of Christ. He said, and he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Isn't that interesting? Here is the Lord Jesus being prophesied 700 years in advance and the prophet says that the wicked will be party to his death and also the rich will be in some way involved with his death. And of course we know that he was crucified between two thieves and he died as a wicked man between wicked men. Now, he himself was not wicked. He was dying for wicked men but he was indeed condemned as a wicked man would have been condemned. And so he makes his grave with the wicked and then he is buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man's tomb. In the words of the Prince of Spe- uh, Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, he says of this, it is no common grave, it is not an excavation dug out by the spade for a pauper in which to hide the last remains of the miserable and over- overwearied bones. This was a princely grave. Now, when you think about the life of Jesus, Jesus led a very simple life, a life in which he owned very few uh, possessions, relatively speaking, in which he uh, relied upon the goodwill of others to provide for his needs. Uh, Why would God have him buried now at the end of his days in a rich man's tomb? And the answer to that question lies in three words that he uttered from the cross as he was crucified. It is finished. You see, in order to accomplish his mission, the Bible tells us he who was rich became poor for our sakes. That is, he abandoned the wealth and the grandeur and the glory of heaven. He abandoned the worship of the angels to come to earth, to live among men, to walk as where we walk, to live as we live, to rub shoulders with us as it were. But the moment he says, it is finished, From that moment on, he's no longer the one who is on the cross as a figure of God's wrath, as the the subject of, of God's judgment. But now he resumes his position. You see, the one around all, around whom all of heaven centered, the one who sat and sits upon the throne of God, the one who was covered in glory, to whom the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, is the same one who made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. But at this point, that's all past now. That's that's history. That's a moment in time. And so the moment he dies, the moment he says it is finished and he gives up the ghost, God the Father will not allow the body of Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be dishonored any further. He won't allow his body to be mistreated one second more. Now his body is to be buried with great dignity. It becomes a sacred thing and it is, a, it is placed with immense honor in the tomb of nobility in the death that in, in death he is honored as with a grave that only a rich man could afford. It was a rich man's tomb. Then it was something else. It was a new tomb. Look in verse 60 of Matthew 27. It says of the body of Jesus that he laid it, that Joseph laid it in his own, notice what it says, new tomb. His own new tomb. 
Though this grave site was marked out for Joseph of Arimathea and his loved ones, it was a recent acquisition. It was a new tomb, a tomb, we're told by Luke, wherein never man before was laid. And that's an important detail when it comes to the tomb of Christ. You know, first of all, there could be no mistaken identity. Never had there been any other body in this tomb before. Now, you might, you might wonder about that. You know, you and I are familiar with uh, graves in which we uh, place up to three bodies in a grave. But actually, in Jewish tombs, you could have numerous bodies, far more than three Because what the Jews would do is that they would put a body in there and then once the body had rotted and you were left with just the bones, there would come a day when they would collect the bones together and they would put them in a little box so big and then they would put that box in the corner of the tomb and and the next body would come and they would do the same thing and they would continue doing that as a family over many years. So you could have, you know, you could easily have a dozen or so or more such boxes in a tomb. But the tomb of Jesus was a new tomb. And that's important because Jesus' body was the only body at this point that ever rested in that place. Hence the angel could say with confidence, come see the place where the Lord lay. And only the Lord lay. No other body was in that grave. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a story of a man whose body is thrown into the grave of Elisha the prophet. And when the corpse is thrown into the body, into the, into the grave, and it touches the body of Elisha, we read that it touched the bones of Elisha, the, the corpse revived, and the man stood up on his feet. Now it could not be said of Jesus' tomb that some prophet had been interred there. You could not impose upon it a story like that Old Testament story and say, well, there was a prophet that was buried there and when he touched the bones of this prophet, uh, then he came back to life again. No, that's not at all. He was raised to life without touching any bones. This was a new tomb. Spurgeon put it, when Christ was born, he lay in a virgin's womb and when he died, he was placed in a virgin tomb. He slept where never man had slept before. It was a new tomb. Come see the place where the Lord lay. A costly tomb. A new tomb. It was a borrowed tomb. Look at verse 60 again of Matthew 27. It says, And he laid it in his own new tomb. Look at that. It says he laid it in, Joseph laid it in his own new tomb. It was a costly tomb. It was an elaborate tomb by ancient standards. It was not the Lord's tomb. It was Joseph's tomb. He had bought it for himself and for his family. And although it was a costly tomb by ancient standards, it it didn't belong to Christ. And I like that because it shows that even in death, he didn't didn't forget his followers. He didn't forget uh, those who surrounded him, who were very often the poor in society. He didn't pay for this tomb. You know, here was the Lord and he was born into an ordinary family. Joseph and Mary weren't anything special. He he gathered around him ordinary men, fishermen and the like. He ministered mostly in a very ordinary place in Galilee. He died as a very ordinary man upon a cross. And by that, you know, by by that I mean he had no great personal wealth to speak of. So in death he relied upon the charity of others to bury him. You know, when you think about it, Jesus, 
throughout his life, borrowed a great deal. Uh, John MacArthur says this of him. Imagine, he says, he owned everything. But when he came into this world, he was borrowing everything from men. Unthinkable. He had, a borrow, he had to borrow a place to be born and not much of a place at that. He had to borrow a place to lay his head. He didn't have a home. Many nights he slept on the Mount of Olives. He had to borrow a boat to cross the little sea of Galilee. He had to borrow a boat to preach from. He had to borrow an animal to ride into the city when he was being triumphantly welcomed as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He had to borrow a room for the Passover because he didn't have a house in Jerusalem. He had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. No Nobody gave him anything. Nobody entrusted him with any treasure. Nobody gave him a home. Nobody gave him animals to ride. Nobody gave him land to call his own. Nobody gave him anything. He served everyone. He had no advantages. He had no privileges. He had to borrow a tomb. You know, some of us would maybe blush to admit that we had bought a garment in a charity shop. But here's Jesus, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator and sustainer of all, and he must rely on human charity for a tomb. So why does he borrow a grave? Well, why does anybody borrow anything? You know, if you, if you bought a burial plot, and then I had a loved one die, and I said to you, can I borrow your burial plot? You'd think that's a strange request. He's going to bar- if you borrow something, by implication, you only need it for a little time. You need it for one job. You know, if I come by your home and I borrow a tool, then I, it's assumed that I'm going to give you the tool back and I'm going to use the tool for a limited period of time for one job, perhaps. You know, uh, you know I, uh, years ago I bought one of the best tools I ever bought. I shouldn't mention this to you, you'll all be borrowing it. Uh, but it was a, a wallpaper streamer. Steamer. You ever, if you've got a wallpaper streamer, you're flying. Let me tell you something. You folks that are scraping on it, you need to get a wallpaper streamer. Okay? But any, you know what? My wallpaper steamer has been all over the place. Everybody, it only cost about 20 pounds, honestly. But people, when they heard I had a wallpaper steamer, were all the time asking to use my wallpaper steamer. It was borrowed. And it came back again. So why does Jesus borrow the grave of Joseph of Arimathea? Because he knows he only needs it for three days. He's not going to stay there. He's not going to occupy a spot. He's not going to put anybody out of place. He's simply using it for a short time and then he's coming out of that grave and so he doesn't need to purchase a grave. He doesn't need a place of his own. He just needs to borrow the grave of Joseph of Arimathea. He just needed it for that short time. And so the angel invites us to come and see a borrowed tomb. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And it was a hollowed tomb. Notice what it says here. In Matthew, in chapter 57, and verse 60, he says that Joseph laid the body of Jesus in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. He had hewn out of the rock. You know, if you were to go to Jerusalem today, if you were to visit the city of Jerusalem, you can go see, which is one of my favorite places, the garden tomb. You know, there are, there are two spots that are considered to be potentially the tomb of Christ. 
Uh, one is at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Roman Catholic Church uh, in Jerusalem itself. And the other is the Garden Tomb, which is just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Very significantly, I think, the Garden Tomb is the only site of all the religious sites in Jerusalem and in Israel. It's the only, religious, the only uh, site that is actually uh, maintained and governed by evangelical believers. All the other sites are run by Catholicism, by the Orthodox, by the Coptics, and others. But this one site is run by people who are genuine believers, the garden tomb. If you go to Jerusalem, I would encourage you to visit that tomb. And it's very similar to the one that is described here in Scripture, including its location within a garden. And so all the archaeological evidence surrounding that tomb indicates that it was indeed in the past the property of a very wealthy man. Now the area is part of an ancient quarry. And the tomb is right outside the ancient walls of Jerusalem, just beyond the Damascus Gate. And right above it was an area that we know archaeologically that was used for the purposes of execution. So the, you have a hillside overlooking this garden tomb, and we know that the Romans used to execute people on that hillside. Uh, they, again, they discovered this from archaeology. They know there were human remains, scores of human remains, that were laying out in the open on that hillside in years gone by. And of course the Romans, you know, they would put you to the cross, but very often they wouldn't bother taking you off the cross. You know, they just let your body rot and then your bones would just fall to the ground and they would just be left there. So you can imagine the scene, can't you, uh, that was left. And also significantly at the garden tomb, as you look out, you see this uh, outcrop of rock that is in the shape of a human skull. And of course we know that the place that Jesus was crucified was called Golgotha, the place of the skull. Now if that is indeed the site of of Jesus' crucifixion and burial, what a stark contrast there is between the top of that hill and the scene below on that first Easter morning. You see the top would have been strewn with these human remains and bones. As I say, Romans didn't worry about burying the dead from crosses. They just let them rot. So the top of the hill would have been this awful sight of death and decay and and just a putrid smell of rotten flesh. But below in the garden you would have had this exact opposite scene of tranquility and beauty and sweet smelling flowers and friends is that not a picture of what the Lord Jesus accomplished when he went to the cross for us was buried and rose again on the top of that hill he bore in his own person all of the filth and all of the file and all of the uh, all of the sin of man all of that stinking putrid rottenness that is part and parcel of this world in which we live was evidenced on the top of the hill there Christ bore our sins he becomes something objectionable to his father he is repulsed by God God abandons him to the cross Because he embodies every form of wickedness, every sin of yours and every sin of mine. But at the bottom of the hill, in that garden, we see a different scene. And in coming to Christ, we find forgiveness through him. And in his resurrection, we find victory through him. And we become to God now not something that is putrid and rotten and repulsive, but we become to God something that is a sweet-smelling savor of Christ's victory and of his finished work. It was a costly tomb. 
It was a new tomb. It was a borrowed tomb. It was a hollowed tomb. But best of all, it was an empty tomb. It was an empty tomb. Listen to what the angel said. He is not here, for he is risen. He saith, come see the place where the Lord lay. I'm so glad about that, aren't you? You know, I remember going to the garden tomb in Jerusalem the first time I visited Israel, and I was really disappointed with it, really disappointed. Because I'd heard people testify that it was such a meaningful experience for them to go to the garden tomb and to see this place where we believe the Lord may have lay. And they were very moved. And, and I went there on a Thursday morning and I visited it and it just felt like visiting any other tourist site. It felt like visiting the Giant's Causeway or going to see Big Ben or something else of, uh, that uh, tourists might go and see. And it was very sort of, I was kind of indifferent to it. And I remember coming away feeling like, you know, that was just a disappointment to me. And then we came back to the garden tomb on the Sunday, the following Sunday. And they don't do this now, but they used to do this back then. At the garden tomb on Sundays back then, they used to have a service. Every Sunday they had a service for Christian people. And they would sing the Easter hymns, you know, uh, you know because he lives, Christ the Lord has risen today. Uh, you know, and all, like, all, this, all the hymns that we would associate with Easter were sung. Uh, and particularly resurrection hymns were sung there at the tomb on, on a Sunday morning. And I went back there on a Sunday morning for this service, and I sat down, and we began to worship. We began to sing the songs, and sitting before me was the, the door of the tomb, and on the outside of the door they had this scripture that we just read uh, this morning. Uh, for he is not here, for he is risen. That is written on the door of the tomb. He is not here, for he is risen. And as I was sitting there, and I was singing the hymns, and was entering into the worship, I can only tell you this strange thing happened, and I'm not one for uh, mystic Christianity, I'm not one for emotional experiences, but it just seemed to me, in my own heart and mind that everybody everybody just kind of faded away and it was almost like the Lord came down and he just sat beside me as it were and he put his arm around me and he says see I told you I wasn't here and I began to cry now if you know me I'm not a, normally a weeper I began to weep and I wept and wept and wept and a step after the service I was still weeping I stepped out into the streets of Jerusalem. I was still weeping. A man asked me the time. In the street, a stranger came up and says, have you got the time? And I said, <laughs> and I couldn't, get my, I couldn't get my words down. In the end, I just put my arm around, man. <laughs> it was just moving. The Lord says, look, I told you I wasn't here. You didn't need to come here. I told you I wasn't here. It's an empty tomb. You know, you can go today and you can visit the tomb of Muhammad in Medina in Saudi Arabia. Many people make that pilgrimage in a year. You can pay your respects at the cemetery of Confucius in Jinning in China. You can fly out to Kushinagar in India and there you can see the, the site that holds the cremated remains of the Buddha. In fact, in 1981 there was a, a devastating flood in China that caused an ancient pagoda to collapse in, at a temple near Xi'an. And uh, when the archaeologists looked through the rubble some years later, a couple of years later, 
They found this miniature little casket and uh, they looked inside and there was a finger inside, just a finger inside this casket, which they believed uh, to be the finger of the Buddha. And so two years later, they put this finger on display in Taiwan and they had four Buddhist monks assigned to protect it. Four, can you imagine? You're, you're assigned to protect a dead finger. So those four fellows stood there and people came in their thousands to see this finger. And they had to stand ten feet away from the finger. They had to bow before it uh, three times. And uh, you know, as crazy as all of that sounds, many of them said they felt honored and they felt grateful uh, to see it. Friends, I'm grateful this morning that we have nobody to see. Not a finger. Not a toe. Not even so much as a tooth. The Buddhists can worship their body parts all day long. Give me the empty tomb. We've no shrine to visit. No mausoleum to stop by. No crypt. No grave at which we might lay lay a wreath. He's gone. He's risen. And he's risen with healing in his wings. You know, they've been searching for him for 2,000 years. They've been trying to find the body of Jesus. They're still scarring Jerusalem, trying to find the body of Jesus. The closest they came was to find the body of James, the brother of Jesus. They found an ossuary box with bones inside. And on the outside it said, James, the brother of Jesus. And that's very interesting because actually on these ossuary boxes when they label them it would normally say James the son of and would name your father but this particular box didn't name the father it said James the brother of Jesus and they believe that this is James who is the half brother of the Lord and so they were encouraged to find the remains of James but they're still searching for the remains of Jesus and they will search till kingdom come because he's not there He is risen. Come see the place where the Lord lay. You know, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science Movement, she's buried at Auburn Cemetery, Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Joseph Smith, the prophet of Mormonism, is buried in the Smith Family Cemetery in Nauvoo, Illinois. Charles T. Russell is buried in the United Cemeteries in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. But Christ is alive. St. Peter's Basilica houses the bodies of the popes, but my Jesus is alive. You say, well, where can I, where do I go to visit the body of Jesus? You can't go anywhere to visit the body of Jesus. I've got news for you. His body's coming to visit us someday. Someday the heavens are going to open. And you're going to see the man with the nail-scarred hands and the pierced side. And he's going to appear You're going to recognize him for who he is. And because he is alive, because he is alive, we can be confident that when we place our trust in him, we will live also. Yes, the tomb, the grave may hold our bodies, but listen, the hour is coming, writes John, in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good, unto the resurrection of life. You see, if you're a Christian, someday your body is going to be in the grave and it's going to lie there in its unconscious state. But all of a sudden, there's going to be a sense of consciousness and no sooner 
will there be a sense of consciousness. Then you'll hear a voice calling you out of the grave. It's the same voice that stood at the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. He's going to call you by name out of the grave. And we will rise because he is risen. The undertaker may lower me in, but the upper taker is taking me out. Friend, do you know him this Easter morning? Do you know him? Can you say today he's your saviour? Honestly now, can you say he, that's my saviour? That's my Lord. That's my King. You know, whilst the Christian may look forward to the resurrection of life, I'm sorry to tell you there's another resurrection that is very sad and very somber. Quite the opposite to the Christian's experience. Listen as John finishes his thoughts here in John 5.28. He says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life. And then he ties this thought on, and they that have done evil, those who have sinned unto the resurrection of damnation. Every one of us will die. And every one of us will rise. Some to experience life eternal in a glorified body with the Lord. And others, sadly, to experience nothing but his judicial condemnation and the second death without the Lord. Say, what's the second death? Revelation 21 tells us, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. We're all going to spend eternity somewhere either in heaven with the Lord or in hell without the Lord. But whether it's in heaven or whether it's in hell really rests upon what we do with this Easter story. It's what we do with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that makes the difference. It's it's what we do with Jesus. And so this morning, if you haven't already done so, I invite you to choose life over death. To choose Jesus over sin. To choose heaven over hell. uh, To come to him today before it's eternally too late. Christian rejoice. His tomb is empty. And ours, should should he tarry, will be empty also. Paul says this. But now is Christ risen from the dead. And become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards they that are Christ's at his coming. That's our blessed hope. This is our resurrection hope. This is the promise and the outcome of the empty tomb. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Let us this Easter morning rejoice in it. Let's stand together as we sing our final hymn this morning. Thine be the glory.